I think it's actually much less about exactly what you are doing, what job you have, what path you are on, um, you know, where you live, et cetera, what industry you're in. I actually think that doesn't really matter nearly as much as we usually think it does. I think we get confused and we get this idea that if we can just, if I can just get myself into the right job in the right industry, then I'll be happy. I think what I've learned is that true deeper level of meaning and fulfillment that that connection to soul has to come first in many ways. I do think there is a lot to be said for kind of breaking away from the traditional path, creating this space to do a deeper dive into a more mysterious and mystical part of ourselves and part of the world to find our way into connection to that deeper part of ourself that is really our guide. Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast, a place for those deeply committed to knowing themselves and embodying their authentic purpose in the world. I'm your host, Kelly Wildmiller. In this show, we gather to discuss what it truly means to lead by our essential nature and uncage our greatest gifts so we may share them with others. We'll be exploring an expansive range of topics from health and healing, spirituality and consciousness to relationships, work, and more. As we turn over many stones, we'll uncover a golden thread inviting us to rewild our bodies and minds while awakening our souls and stepping more fully into our purpose. Thank you for being here and please enjoy this wild conversation. Hello, wild ones. I am deeply honored and excited to share this conversation with you. Brooks Barron was one of the guides that led my wilderness-based vision fast experience in May of 2021 which means that Brooks and I spent 11 days together enacting soul craft practices from the teachings of Animus Valley Institute. Brooks met me at a time when I was really quite lost and hadn't yet found community that could meet me in the depths of my desires for a more purposeful life. But Brooks was like a soul brother almost right away, and he held such beautiful space for me to feel, grieve, connect with my wildness, and inquire into the mysteries of myself and life. Since that quest, Brooks has gone on to create his own soul-aligned business called Starlight Leadership, where he guides motivated and passionate people through wilderness-based initiations, plant medicine journeys, and radical self-inquiry, so they may hear the callings of their hearts, live their genius out in the world, and step into their light by fully going into their darkness with love and support. This conversation is dynamic and deep. We explore what it's like to hit rock bottom and realize you're out of alignment in life, even when things look really good on the surface. We talk about why the wilderness and healing and community are so transformational, the intimate relationship between our ego and soul, and the supportive, playful properties of healing with cannabis sativa as a legalized plant medicine in a ceremonial fashion. Brooks is a grounded, honest, and really genuine teacher who role models what it's like to connect with something deeper and potentially a little esoteric inside of us, and then take bold, courageous action on it out in the world. 
which for me looks like this podcast right now. My hope is that as you're listening, you might feel something come alive inside of you. A tug, a whisper, an inkling, a download, that perhaps you too have more light to bring forth into this world. If so, I really want to hear from you. Send me a message and share whatever golden threads came alive for you throughout this conversation. Without further ado, welcome Brooks Barron. Welcome, Brooks, to the show. Thank you so much for being here. This is such a delight. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Hmm. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm honored to be here. So excited to be part of this amazing creation you're putting out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Feels very full circle, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Indeed. Yeah. To kick us off, I'd love if you could orient us to your world right now. Where are you located and what does the natural world look like outside of your walls? Awesome. So I'm located in Carbondale, Colorado, which sits in the Roaring Fork Valley. The Roaring Fork River runs from Aspen to Glenwood Springs and I'm on the banks about a, maybe a half mile away. And Mount Sopris rises above our town right now, sprinkled with some snow on the tops of her twin peaks uh, and the fall colors of the aspens on her shoulders. I feel like you just described a painting. (laughs) The Carbondale Aspen area is one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've ever been to. And I imagine right now it just looks stunning. It's a pretty special place to live. I feel pretty happy to be here for sure. Beautiful. Yeah. So a question that I'm asking every guest at the start of each episode is, in what ways were you particularly wild during your youth? Mm. Great question. So as a kid, I had the I had the good fortune to spend a lot of time in these same mountains where I live now, actually. My... Uh, Family has a mountain cabin in this area up at 10,000 feet, kind of tucked in wild mountain valley. And I remember as a kid just being so in awe of all of the wildness around us up there. And my younger brother, Ben, and I would go out on these adventures together in the woods and basically just make trouble um, and play pretend, uh, remember we would get stick clubs and try to cut down certain plants that we didn't like, namely the, the stinging nettles or the thistles <laughs> <laughs> little, we knew we were probably helping them spread their seeds or when we were old enough, uh, we like to th- try to throw our pocket knives and stick them into the trees, which you could imagine ended up creating a few bloody outcomes, (laughs) just cuts on the hand, you know, no, no big deal, but yeah, playing in the mud, playing naked in the streams and the ponds. Yeah. It was pretty, uh, just very full of playfulness and feeling really at home in, in nature. sounds like you had parents and a family that not only allowed, but probably helped cultivate that sense of freedom out in nature just exploring on your own, developing a, a close sense with 
just wild places. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I have deep gratitude to both of my parents for the example that they set for me in their own lives, following their own inner wildness and prioritizing their own love and connection for the, for the natural world and how well they supported us to do the same. Wow. That's beautiful. And did you grow up in the same area that you're living in right now? So I grew up, well, we, we would come up in the summers to the, to the cabin outside of Aspen. Um, but the rest of the year we lived in Boulder. So, uh, we were in downtown Boulder when I was in elementary school. And then when, when I was in third or fourth grade, I think we moved out to the, um, kind of outskirts of Boulder on the east side of, of town where we also had some beautiful nature around. This was more the kind of plains variety, big cottonwood trees and great horned owls and coyote and forests to, uh, to play paintball wars in and such. <laughs> Nice. Well, as you're describing the landscape of Boulder, which is where I, I call home now, it reminds me of the way that uh, you would speak when I first met you, which was on my vision fast in May of 2021 with Animus Valley Institute. And so I'd just love to offer the listeners a bit of background on uh, where we met and why I'm so excited for us to be having this conversation right now. And for those who've been following my journey and story over the last couple of years, they know that I did this 11-day wilderness-based vision fast with Animus Valley Institute, founded by Bill Plotkins and based out of Durango, Colorado. And you were the assistant guide. Is that what you would call yourself or co-guide? Yeah, I was in an apprentice guide role, technically speaking, on that particular quest. Yeah. Yeah. You and Rebecca Wildbear. And there was something like 14 of us maybe in this cohort of people. <laughs> and over the course of 11 days, going through different uh, ceremonial activities, different inquiries into what we were there for, what we were longing to discover about ourselves, and then spending three days alone camping while fasting, only drinking water, and out there looking for a soul, part of ourselves to, to reveal mm -hmm. itself mm -hmm. and then coming back and being welcomed by you and Rebecca who helped us as our guides to make sense of our experiences and weave together a narrative that we could take with us after the quest. And it, it was a defining life experience for me, a truly before and after type of experience, but it also took the better part of a year afterward for me to even understand what had happened and what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. And so here we are a little over a year later, a year and a quarter. And it's only now that I feel ready to kind of unpack this experience and, <laughs> and, and share it with the world in a deeper way. And so I have so much gratitude to you and the role that you played out in the wilderness, the way you held space and, your incredible reflection skills. Um, and yeah, I'm just so excited to get to know more about your story, how you found yourself in this line of work, what you're doing now, and um, what the wild path of soul means to you and why it matters. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kelly, for those warm words. And, and 
Yeah, I'll just say actually a little over a year seems like you're you're making pretty good time. I think I can I can relate to the reverberance that these deep experiences can have through our lives and the the time and space that it often takes for us to uh I mean I I went on my first vision fast with with Animus. And funnily enough, having I also had Rebecca Wildbear as my guide on that on that quest. I was in September 2014, and to date, I, I'm still I'm still deepening into my understanding of of what that experience means meant and what what it opened up for me. It, it continues to to guide me over eight years later now. Wow! So if I'm doing the math correctly, because I believe we're about the same age. Eight years ago would have put you in your mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. 25. Okay. About to turn 26. Gotcha. Uh All right. Well, when I was 25, I was nowhere near understanding the, (laughs) that I had a soul and that it was longing for things and that I should head into the wilderness and connect with it. So can you help us rewind the clock and take us back to maybe that part of your life, maybe even a little bit earlier when these awakenings, these longings, this knowing to go into the wilderness, when this first came online for you, what was going on? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. So yeah, to, to briefly connect the dots, you know, I kind of alluded to this like pretty idyllic childhood experience that I was blessed with. And of course, you know, kind of no matter how beautiful our childhood is, we still have a process of growing up and encountering the world. So I had, um, I guess been lucky to have some pretty smooth sailing as a young kid. And, you know, of course in time I'm, I met up against the wound of the world. I might call it, you know, I met up against some of the, some of the difficulties of being human, uh, that we all encounter in our own way. Uh, for me, a couple particular ways that that surfaced was the ending of a romantic relationship that I was in when I was a college student that ended towards the end of my college years and was a very painful experience for me. The, that, that ending was just brutal, uh, for me at the time. And that was kind of coinciding with also encountering some of my idealism and my, and my shelteredness as a kid, sort of realizing some of the harsher realities of the outer world. There was a, it was actually the summer between my junior and senior year of college that I went to Washington DC for an internship with the environmental defense fund. And I was on a mission to help the United States pass comprehensive climate legislation through the Senate. This would have been summer 2010. You know, it came in the, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and so confident that I was going to just make it happen. And the reason I hadn't happened yet, because I hadn't been there. <laughs> and um, and I ended up having a front row seat to kind of watching all of our, our being like the environmental movements, all the environmental movements, hopes and dreams for that summer kind of crashing down bit by bit, Deepwater Horizon oil spill and turned into this very uh, depressing experience. So I kind of left feeling quite cynical about our government and our politics and our country and our ability to really 
turn things around in the ways that I believed they needed to turn around. And I felt quite powerless to do anything about that. Um, so it was kind of like, yeah, that, that personal heartbreak of the relationship and then, and then a sort of heartbreak of, of sort of the loss of the shiny idealism of my youth left me with this real pain inside. And hmm, yeah, you know, looking back now I can, I can have a lot of compassion for myself and I can also see that I was, I was not equipped nor ready to really listen to that pain and open myself to it. You know, I, I did what a lot of us do and we're hurt and we don't know how to fix it is I found ways to kind of numb and distract myself. So I turned to, for me, I turned to work. So I worked my tail off my senior year of college, wrote a award-winning thesis, got a prestigious job at a management consulting firm, which was back in DC, you know, started grinding 60, 70 hour weeks and then just basically partying and drinking on the weekends. And, um, yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but I think in retrospect, I can see I was, I was, uh, trying to, trying to keep myself from needing to, to feel the deeper feelings that I was holding in, in my, in my being. And, um, I've, I did, I did feel the cost of that. And thanks to, I think the, in many ways to my family upbringing and to the example I had of my parents who were people who really followed their passions and, I was always inspired by my father's story in particular of pursuing his dream as a writer and doing so quite successfully and had internalized this lesson, this belief that it was possible, that it is possible for us to feel really lit up and alive by our work, to really love what we do. And <laughs> I had the awareness in my consulting job that I didn't love it. I, I was, was feeling really worn down by it and, and understandably so it's just, I was I was not orienting to that job from a very healthy place. Um, and I wasn't holding a very healthy lifestyle. So my escape route was to apply for business school at, at Stanford, which I was lucky enough to get in. And I was overjoyed by that. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to move back to the West to be in a place where outdoor sports and outdoor recreation would be more accessible to me in the ways that I wanted them to be and to reconnect with sort of more of the West coast laid back culture, as well as the, um, the climate tech burgeoning climate tech and clean energy industry that I was really passionate about getting into. And so I landed at Stanford and kind of had this idea like, cool, this is going to, this is going to fix all my problems. Now I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> and then had, I think the deepening of my unraveling into what, uh, Bill Plotkin would call my descent to soul, the dissolution of my adolescent ego identity really kicked into gear the summer after my first year at Stanford, where I was at a job that on paper seemed to be actually everything that I wanted. It was, it was in many ways kind of very different from my consulting job. I was working at a 
clean energy and solar energy company based in Salt Lake City, riding my mountain bike in the Wasatch Mountains on the weekends. And to my adolescent ego mind, that was what would it would take to make me happy. I'd sort of fixed the problem and gotten there. But on my day-to-day experience in that job, once again, I found this deep sort of emptiness and unhappiness. And so it was at that point that I couldn't run away from it any longer. And I, I really started to, to spin out into what I might affectionately call a quarter life crisis. And I, I genuinely have affection for it because as, you know, as Plotkin writes about allowing myself to, to spiral down, allowing myself to fall apart, to actually kind of release my uh, perception of control and, and just get to a place where I couldn't deny that I needed some help. I needed some guidance. That's what made me available to the idea of going out on a vision quest. And I'd been so lucky to find Animus through a good friend of mine who had been on a quest with them a year prior. And I just felt that there was something in this experience that really called to me. I had always found solace and and healing in nature. And when I heard about my my friend's experience on his Animus quest, I realized, holy cow, there's a whole nother level. Like there's way more depth and magic that's possible in terms of connecting with nature than I even ever knew. I want that. And couple that with, I feel so lost. So that was the circumstance that led me to, to mystery Canyon, (laughs) the um, very same Canyon that I would return to. Yeah. Seven years later to, to support and guide you and your group on your descent. Thank you so much folks for sharing more of your backstory. I I knew probably about 50% of that. And what, what really stands out to me is that your journey seemed to have followed this very amazing path by Western standards, you know, come from a wonderful family, nourishing family, get into great schools, have prestigious internships, job offers, Stanford, you know, this mm-hmm. continuing like <laughs> unfoldment of what we value to be the creme de la creme of Western success mm-hmm. that so many people are striving for thinking that that's going to help them answer these deeper questions of their lives. And yet being in what many would probably you know, if they could buy their way into it, they probably would. And yet still feeling this, this void, this deeper void, or it wasn't enough. It couldn't fulfill you in the ways that really mattered. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing all of that out. I think, you know, the thought that, that is coming up for me around that is, is I, given my circumstances, I was lucky enough to, uh, to start to see through the veil of kind of quote unquote traditional success or these, um, these metrics, these ideas of, of prestige and achievement, um, that so many of us in the West, in, in the U S orient 
our lives around and, and look to for, for meaning in the absence of, of other ways of making meaning that we may have kind of drifted away from as a culture. Yeah. Because of in some ways, kind of the privileged launching pad I had into that world, it, it didn't take me too long to, to figure out like, wait a minute, this isn't all that. I mean, and, and to be clear, I, I'm also, you know, incredibly grateful for, for that privilege and, uh, very aware of how much it has supported me and continues to support me and in this path. And it was, um, yeah, an important lesson for me to reorient to a different way of uh, a kind of a deeper form of, of meaning. And, and meaning was, you know, at the time when I was that 25 year old ambitious MBA student, that purpose and meaning, those were kind of the words that really called to me. I, I wasn't capable yet of kind of really owning that what I really wanted on a deeper level was healing. <laughs> I can't, I, I made, I got, I got made my way to that, but, but I could, I could tell and I could communicate. I could own that I was really hungry for, for a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. And I sort of felt like I was striking out. I'm so curious. This might be an edgy question for those who are listening and are following that traditional path. Do you think it's possible to find that level of like that soul deep level of meaning while being in the quote unquote traditional success path or paradigm? Or are they, are they compatible in any way or are they, do you kind of need to break away? Really good question. So, um, my answer to that is going to be a little nuanced. Um, I think it's actually much less about exactly what you are doing, what job you have, what path you are on, you know, where you live, etc., what industry you're in. I actually think that doesn't really matter nearly as much as we usually think it does. I think we get confused and we get this idea that if we can just, if I can just get myself into the right job in the right industry, then I'll be happy. I think what I've learned is that true deeper level of meaning and fulfillment, that, that connection to soul has to come first. And in many ways, you know, I do think there is a lot to be said for I mean, I certainly needed to do this in some way, kind of breaking away from the traditional path, creating this space to do a deeper dive into a more mysterious and mystical part of ourselves and part of the world to find our way into connection to that deeper part of ourself that is really our guide. And then once we've found our way into that connection and once we've developed the skill and ideally the sort of community around us to stay connected, to help us, help us stay connected and to keep learning and, and keep deepening on the path, you know, yeah, our soul, our, you know, someone's soul might lead them to be a CEO of fortune 500 company. Sure. And when I look out there in the world at the upper echelons of of success in the traditional sense of our, of our country. Um, the story I make up is that, that actually a lot of those people, probably the vast majority of them 
were driven to that level of success from more of a, more of a place of their ego or their mind's ideas of what would make them happy, then kind of encounter this, this feeling of, well, I got here and somehow it's not all it's cracked up to be. What this is bringing up for me is what Plotkins talks about with the ego becoming an agent of soul. And I think it's, you hear a lot around like, we need to destroy the ego or the ego needs, needs to die. And it's like the ego is not actually going anywhere, but it, it can mature. And I believe in one of his books, he actually explicitly mentions that you may not actually change your line of work after you go through this process. You're just orienting towards it from a different place inside of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that'd be worth, maybe I'll speak a little more to that because I think that could be worth, this kind of worthwhile theory to bring in. Um, yeah. As you're saying, Plotkin suggests that the adolescent ego and, and that's adolescent in terms of a like psychological development stage has nothing to do with years of life, but the adolescent ego operates in service of itself. And that is, yeah, to your point, we often demonize ego in our culture. I think it's important to actually, especially in like, you know, (laughs) uh, some of the circles I make up that you and I probably run in, I think it's important to actually appreciate ego and appreciate also that it's that getting to a stage of, of a well-developed adolescent ego that is effective at operating in service of itself. That is a really important stage in human development. We need to, we need to be able to function in the world and look out for ourselves and take care of ourselves and meet our basic needs. But we lose track of, I think, and what Paul can kind of, demonstrates in his writings is that, um, that's not the end goal. That's just a stepping stone on the way. And that the psychological adult has actually gone through the process that Plotkin calls descent to soul in which their ego does die. Their adolescent ego does die, but it doesn't disappear. It has to die and disintegrate to create the space for the deeper part of ourselves, that part of us that is, that is infinite and connected to the greater whole and carries in some mysterious way, the kind of keys or the blueprint for us to fulfill our deepest purpose in this lifetime. We have to allow our younger version of our ego self to die and disintegrate before we can become available to that deeper part of ourselves showing up and providing us some guidance. And once we get to that stage, we still have an ego. And in fact, our ego is more important than ever. And our task then becomes to reshape our ego instead of being in service of itself to be in service of our soul. And then our ego becomes sort of the agent of soul in this human realm that actually makes change, actually gets things done, you know, actually creates human results in the human world. It's crucially important. And, you know, often I'm a, I'm a coach and a guide and I work with a lot of clients who are 
on this journey. And often people who are sort of looking out down at the edge of Soul Canyon and considering this possibility of allowing their adolescent ego to die in search of this future, future possibility of, of deeper meaning and alignment with their soul often sort of have this fear, this resistance of like, well, I don't want to let go of my ego. I don't want to let go of those, that, that version of motivating myself and driving myself that's gotten me here. You know, I don't want to lose that. And, and I think what, what feels important to communicate is when we're, when we're willing to, to trust ourselves and our souls and trust life deeply enough to, to surrender to that kind of, uh, a death and a disintegration of our younger ego identity. What emerges is actually a, a, a much more nourishing and sustainable form of motivation and action in the world. And I actually, I actually like to say, I, I actually think our ego's greatest sort of satisfaction is to finally have a greater purpose, a purpose that's greater than themselves to align with and to, and to, operate in service of. You articulated that so beautifully. They just, they just don't have the ego doesn't have the, Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say the ego just doesn't have that, um, capacity to kind of see that future before it appears. So we, that's our role in kind of guiding ourselves, being, stepping into that, that observer, part of our consciousness that can sort of see the different pieces of ourselves, soul and, and ego and sort of shepherd the transformation between the two. What I keep seeing in my mind as you're speaking this and articulating it so beautifully is the metaphor of the butterfly, the caterpillar to butterfly transformation, which is used in so many writings about soul I believe it's in mm -hmm. many cultures, the yeah. butterfly is very connected to this idea of soul. And, um, do you remember the book when we were kids called the hungry, hungry caterpillar totally. or just maybe the hungry yeah. caterpillar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here's this caterpillar who's crawling around eating everything it sees, no regard for anybody else. It's hungry. It's just, it's feeding itself. It's fueling itself. And when I, when I actually finally learned what happens in order for a caterpillar to become a butterfly, it was mind blowing to me that mm -hmm. the caterpillar thinks it's dying. So it goes and builds a cocoon. It builds its own coffin to die in. And these imaginal cells, which are more or less like a cancerous cell to the caterpillar start to take over and the caterpillar has to surrender into its own death not knowing that there's a butterfly on the other side of its process. It actually thinks right. it's dying. And then right. these imaginal cells eventually transform and a butterfly emerges. This glorious, beautiful, iridescent creature that just, obviously, if you think about it, just brings everybody awe and wonder <laughs> and can see mm. things from a higher, more beautiful perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So beautiful. I mean, talk about wild courage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk about deep surrender. Yeah. So, 
So you go through this big sort of initiatory breakdown along the traditional path of success and mm-hmm. through, through, uh, your network through people kind of bringing you different ideas as it seems to happen. Life just starts bringing you the next step. Your friend introduces you to Animus and now you find yourself in literal mystery Canyon. Mm -hmm. What happened on that first quest um, that eventually paved the way to you now being a guide yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, um, First and foremost, I, I finally gave my sp- myself the space to to do some deep healing, and I was very skillfully supported by by my guides, Rebecca Wildbear and, and Sage Magdalene was the other guide uh, of my group in that quest, and the two of them, yeah, beautifully supported me in uh, ceremonially separating from my old life, my old self. I remember the moment down by the river where I was holding a a stick in my hand that I had just kind of imbued with the whole, like all of my attachments and identities and relationships in my life that I was, everything that I was willing to, as we say, put on the altar for mystery, um, to let go of ceremonially, as by way of, of giving the great mystery a, a broader, as broad of a canvas as possible to, to paint the painting of, of my vision for my purpose and, and, um, to trust that what would, what does not serve would be, would, would, would fall away and what was aligned would stay. And they helped me open up to the mystery in some, kind of more tangible ways too. Like, uh, I started tracking my dreams and, you know, I'd never thought much about dreams before that experience, but before I knew it, you know, I think actually it might've been my first night at the, at the B&B where we began, had this really jarring dream that I shared with a sage at breakfast in the morning. And out of this dream came this character called Trout, who had kind of got my attention in the dream in this most like, uh, <laughs> kind of surprising and terrifying and jarring way. It was in the dream, there was a buffet table, this like big decadent buffet of food. And I went up to go get uh, a piece of, of this big fish that was lying out on a plate. And then all of a sudden the fish flopped out and jumped on me and, and, and started flapping on the floor. It was very, uh, very arresting experience. And, and so, so Sage helped me see, was like, well, maybe there's this, maybe this is a being who is trying to get your attention, who could maybe be a guide for you. And these are things that like, you know, my Stanford MBA mind was like, would have been like, this is the craziest shit. Like what the, what kind of hippie voodoo madness are we doing here? And, but it's like, because I was hungry enough, I was willing to, put doubts aside just for at least for the 11 days of that experience. I'm just going to give this a shot. Like I'm here. I might as well go for it. And before I knew it, I was cultivating a relationship with this mystical being of trout. I was going down to the riverbanks and taking my shoes off and putting my feet in the water and looking up at the stars and having a conversation with a massive trout moving, swimming through the cosmos and offering me wisdom about my life. 
So I said, in short, I started to allow myself to be guided and to hold more lightly my stories about the way the world works. And then as I, as I, as I said initially, you know, to, um, allow me, gave myself some space to, to begin to heal. So in particular out on my solo, and again, with the skillful prompting of my guides, I, I enacted some self-designed ceremonies that really helped me as, as Bill, as Plotkin puts it, do some really important self-healing and wholeness work, um, welcoming home, kind of um, banished parts of myself, healing my relationship with some inner critic voices that were limiting me, you know, uh, the loyal soldier archetypes of coming to realize like, oh, these, these, they're trying to protect me. They're trying to defend me because they think I'm still a little kid that needs to be defended in this way. But actually I can help them understand that I'm now an adult who can, for me, it was a, a big loyal soldier of mine that I encountered on that first quest was like the one in me who makes sure that I'm uh, staying normal and cool. You know, I went thought back to elementary school and how how important it felt for elementary school Brooks to have the approval of his friends and to be seen as a cool kid and an in kid that that would help protect him from from ridicule and embarrassment, which to that little boy felt like just about as scary as death. So recognizing that those parts of me were still fighting the same war as if I was that same little fragile kid and saying, oh no, actually I can, well, thank you. Thank you for your diligent service. And, you know, I'm actually at a point now where I can handle people ridiculing me or thinking I'm weird. Like, that's okay. I'm willing to take that for the sake of finding some deeper alignment with myself. I did a deep dive into my sacred wound so it's another Plotkin idea or that he writes about, at least not his original idea, I don't think, but um, that we all in some way um, leave our childhood with some kind of wounding. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe that, maybe that wound, it's like the um, little piece of sand inside the oyster shell that creates the irritation that then eventually causes the oyster to produce the pearl. It's like our, our, our wound is somehow our wounding is somehow a guide into our into us discovering our deepest gifts, and um, so I, I did I did a deep some deep sacred wound work around that that romantic breakup that college ending of college relationship that had been really painful for me. Kind of finally got to a point of actually feeling all my feelings around all that. <laughs> like not bottling all my emotions up and numbing from like I had been for four or five years. I just actually let it, I just really let it flow. And I, you know, uh, I don't know if at that time I could have done that anywhere else than solo in the wilderness on a vision fast. Cause, um, had anybody been watching me, I probably would have clammed right up, but, it, but, but the circle of nine Ponderosa pines that was around my solo spot were a very, loving and supportive audience. And one of them even volunteered to sort of stand in as my, as my ex-girlfriend. And I just wailed and you know, I wailed at her. I wailed at me. I let it all out. I just let, I cried like a baby. I thought I might never even come back. <laughs> I thought I might explode. I was feeling so much. And then the wave, the wave 
passed. And then I, I realized, oh, I'm still here. I'm okay. And, and then of course, I uh, started to get these insights about like, oh, wow. I started to see why this whole breakup was so painful for me is actually, you know, sure. I, there was a lot of sadness about losing this beautiful person, this beautiful relationship in my life, but on a deeper level, there had been this really toxic story that I had been telling about it, that the fact that she didn't want to be with me, that she, that I could, was unsuccessful in winning her back was, was proof in the pudding of my kind of confirmation of my deepest fear that on some level I'm unlovable. I'm inherently flawed. Without her, I would never be my best self or my fullest, live my fullest life. And so in that moment, I started to, to encounter and actually embody, you know, the principle of, of 100% responsibility and owning like, no, 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 no. Like I'm not at the effect of anybody else to be my best self and to live my best life. I get to choose that. I did some deep healing around my relationship with my father. And then eventually all of that made enough space for me to be available for uh, what I now look back on as my first soul encounter. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> Sure. Actually, Brooks, before you, you share the soul encounter, um, which I know is a very intimate part of you, yeah. you're really revealing a, a deep essence. So please tread as lightly as feels good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, but before you do, and this is probably a question I should have asked at the beginning of the episode, but can you define soul or can you at least mm -hmm. explain mm -hmm. it in your own words? Because I know that if I was listening to this podcast five years ago, I wouldn't quite know what we're talking about without having a sense of what soul means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, so, um, I'll reference our teacher, Bill Pawkin again. I like his definition of soul as our unique ecological niche in the world. There's so much to unpack it's, there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if we, if we conceive of ourselves as, if we conceive of ourselves as completely wild and natural beings, right? We like to, sometimes we get this idea that as humans, we're separate from nature. If we, if we unwind that and remember that we're just as natural as any other form of life on this planet, we can then kind of connect with the idea that just like every other species out in nature plays some important role in creating a life enhancing overall ecosystem. We as human beings have the opportunity to do the same thing, but whereas most wild beings in nature, if not may probably I'd say all wild beings in nature don't have much trouble fulfilling their unique ecological niche because they don't have the capacity to, be anything but their authentic selves. <laughs> Nature is always itself, just not just naturally so. So part of what does I I think maybe differentiate ourselves from from the rest of nature is is this prefrontal cortex, this uh, this ego identity, this uh, this this um, capacity that we have to seek to control or shape the way we are seen by others, the image that we have in the world, in short, to kind of actually diverge from our authenticity. Because as the tribal beings that we are, sometimes that's of service, um, particularly, you know, in, in younger stages of development. So it's like we get to find our way home to 
remembering our, our unique role to play in the broader ecosystem. That'd be one way to define soul. Another way to define soul would be to conceive of um, there being kind of two primary directions of spirituality. So there's two directions we can head in to connect with the sacred. One of the first would be the upper world going up. And that's the familiar one to most of us in the modern Western world that we, we kind of look up and connect with, with God, with oneness, with universal consciousness and heaven, et cetera, spirit. What we may have forgotten about, what I think we have forgotten about in a big way is the, is the other direction, which is going down into the underworld, the, hence the descent to soul because, because soul lives in the underworld. So this is, this is if, if going into the upper world is going into the direction of light, going into the underworld is going into the direction of darkness. This is why to encounter our souls, we have to move through a process of death. We have to, we have to learn how to actually embrace, open ourselves to, to our, our inner darkness, to, uh, romancing the mystery and, uh, kind of lurking in, so seeking out what's, what's, what's stalking us in the shadows can often feel a lot that can feel pretty scary to, to a lot of us who are kind of in a Western consciousness that tends to put light on a hierarchy, you know, rung above dark. And yeah, I think the, a, a lot of how I see my kind of work in the world is to actually help us remember the virtue of darkness and realize that, um, when we run away from our darkness, it drives us and creates a lot of nasty results. When we can find the capacity within ourselves to actually open to turn towards and embrace our inner darkness, that's what guides us to self-healing and holing. Um, that's what makes us more, more whole and complete human beings. And it just so happens that that's also what makes us available to an encounter with our soul, to an encounter with that, that sacred and unique essence within ourselves that can guide us into giving our gifts to the world, playing the role that only we can play in this lifetime to serve the greater whole, to serve spirit. So soul is actually connected to spirit and is an intricate part of that oneness and also inherently unique. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I'm reminded of you know, the yin and yang symbol. I'm reminded of the infinity symbol. All of these all of these symbols of polarity and I can definitely attest to the journey of going into our darkness, into these depths, although it sounds like who would want to do that based on how it how it's being phrased. We would of course want to run from that as much as possible, but I will say that by doing so a new sense of aliveness comes on inside of our being. We do feel like a more whole being. We have access to greater depths of creativity, to expression, to compassion too. Uh, and truly going into the darkness for me has been one of, has been the most significant practice 
of my life. And there's lots of ways to get into that, lots of practices, so to speak, to get into that, which I would love to chat with you about. I like that. Um, yeah. So you asked me about my first soul encounter and I'd be happy to, to share some more about that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit of kind of framing for the listeners is when I say soul encounter, um, what I mean is sort of my first, uh, experience. This was a, a, an experience that came at the end of my first quest that, um, and I actually didn't realize what it was at the time, but that in, in retrospect, I can look back and see that this was the first instance of my soul really kind of reaching out to me somehow or other, <laughs> I guess my soul decided I was ready to receive a vision of sorts for, uh, for encountering or sort of for, for leading myself into a deeper experience of my, of my life for, for, um, for getting in touch with it, with, and eventually embodying my, my deeper self. And, uh, so in my case, this, it came in a dream. So it was actually funny enough after I got back from my solo, got back from my solo, we started, we, uh, broke up, broke the fast, you know, came back as a group and told our stories. And, um, and I was thinking, great. Yeah. I did some, some, really good healing work and you know, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, maybe not like fundamentally changed, but this was definitely a good experience. I'm glad I did it. And then that final night in the Canyon before we hiked out the next day, um, I slept out under the stars and I awoke sometime around four thirty or four forty-five in the morning with this dream. And I immediately knew something was up because I was wide awake at 4.30 AM, which is not my typical MO. I'm a pretty good sleeper. And usually, you know, I dream and kind of struggle to wake myself up to write it down and remember it. This one was different. I woke up electric with aliveness and with this really strong sensation body sensation of warmth in my chest, the sense of radiant warmth in my chest that actually connected to, to the dream image that came. And, uh, I kind of jolted up outside out of my sleeping bag and I had this sense that all of a sudden I was a different person, that I was connected to this deeper part of myself. I had this groundedness, this clarity, this energy, this aliveness, uh, this sense of flow and presence that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before in my life. And so before I, and I'll, I'll, talk, I'll speak a little more about the dream in a moment, but, but uh, first I'll say that, you know, before I even knew that this was a soul encounter, and actually it took me um, nearly seven years to figure it out. It was, it was before going back to Animus as an apprentice with your quest, I was reading Bill's most recent book and reading about soul encounter and, re and realizing like, Oh my God, that's what that was. <laughs> Yet, even without knowing the Bill Plotkin terminology for it, it had already done its work on me by that point. And it had done its work on me through connecting me to this embodied feeling. So it's like, there was the image of the dream that continues to be a mystery that, that yields more and more gifts for me. But there was, also in a more immediate sense, this like embodied sensation of aliveness. 
that came through. And I just knew in that, I remember wandering around the, the forest of the Canyon, you know, in the, in the starlight while I was waiting for the rest of my group to, to wake up and just giddy with joy. I was like, I just knew that if I could stay in touch with this feeling, I'd find my way. Cause once again, I kind of come into this quest thinking like, I want to find deeper meaning and purpose. So what that had meant to my adolescent ego mind was I got to figure out what to do after I graduate from business school. Like what job am I going to take? What's the path going to look like? Chart the trap path, you know, A to B. And that's what's going to get us meaning and purpose. And I realized after that dream, it's like, oh no, 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 no. It's not about that at all. It's just about, can I stay connected to this feeling? Can I find my way back here? You know, I, I knew I was like, I'm sure I'll drift away, but I sort of had this sense like I found my way here once I can find my way back again. And that's essentially what I, what I have done since and what I continue to do. So I'll briefly share the dream if that's sounds good to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Great. So I like to speak this dream in present tense because for me, it's still alive. So in the dream, I'm walking up a creek bed. It's actually the same creek bed that I was in while, or on the banks of while I was on my, my solo on that first quest. And it's dark around. There's uh, the forest in the canyon around me is, is dark. It's nighttime. And there's this bright white light upstream as kind of these long fingers of white light making their way down the the creek bed and and reaching out and touching me. And as I walk, I look down and I can actually see the same bright white light emanating from my own chest. That's that, that's that radiant warmth in the chest that is like a, like a, like a star. Like there's a star in my heart that was, uh, sending light out into the world and, um, drawing me closer into this bigger white light up the stream. And I look behind me and I can see that there's other, there are people following me kind of shadowy figures in the dark. I can't exactly see their faces or tell who they are, but I have this knowing that they are my people. Like they're, they love me. I love them. They trust me. I trust them. And they're following my lead here. And I, and I, I don't know where we're going. Like we're walking upstream and I'm leading them step by step. Not exactly sure what's around the next corner, but I, again, I just have this deep embodied knowing that we're headed in a good direction, uh, wherever we're going, it's, it's good. And this radiant warmth and light just sort of helps that knowing penetrate every kind of muscle and bone and fiber of my being. So that's the dream. I was closing my eyes and I'm there with you. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. And I was just going to say, that's the, that's the image that came to me that night. And over the years since then, as I've, as I've just continued to more or less for some time, kind of trial and error, try to keep finding my way back to that feeling and stay connected to it as I could, I have found myself creating a life that reflects that image. And I've found, and, and kind of encountering the, 
understanding that continues to deepen and reveal more of itself to me that within that image is um, a metaphorical representation of, of my unique gifts, gifts to give to the world. Thank you for sharing what is such a intimate, close story for you. And I appreciate you sharing it in this way. Um, and this feels like an, a perfect segue to share more about your company and the work that you are doing in the world. And the the name of the company after hearing that story mm-hmm. has so much more depth and meaning <laughs> to it. So if you would like to reveal the name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the name is, is, um, Starlight Leadership. And, um, yeah, you're welcome. It feels, it feels really great to, to get to share this story with you and, and your listeners in this way. And, and, um, and maybe, uh, before we move on, important to, to mention as well that, uh, you know, for other folks on this, on this path, on this journey, these, uh, stories don't always want to be shared. Um, and that's important to, to really tune into what's ready to be shared and what's not. And, you know, for me personally, with that particular dream, I didn't tell anybody about it for, I think at least a year, if not more. And it was many years before I was willing to be, to tell more than, you know, a small handful of my closest people in my life about it. Um, it just felt so powerful to me at first that I was, I was scared to somehow diminish that. But the most important thing was that I listened to it. I I allowed it to do its work on me. I opened myself to that alchemical transformation that it was initiating within myself. And I kept on listening and I kept on stayed devoted to it through, you know, many ups and downs kind of after that point, going back to business school, having some successes and some failures as I tried to bring this magic into my life and, you know, for a period kind of actually recoiling and kind of going back into the prior career path that I, that sort of my ego thought was going to make me happy because I needed time it, it to, uh, blocking calls at the stage of metamorphosis, um, which he says often takes at least two to three years in my case, probably more like four to five. Um, and what was important was that I, I kept that promise to myself. I kept that promise. There's actually a promise I made to a juniper tree on the last day of the quest back at the, the bed and breakfast where we started and ended the journey was that I will stay connected to that feeling. I will, I will chart my life around this feeling. And so, you know, several years later, when I was a couple of years into a, a startup job in San Francisco that I liked, but I didn't love that helped me kind of find the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to take the leap and I'm going to really go for it. And then, it, and then, yeah, this sort of several years, even after that point of initially taking the leap of more trial and error till I kind of found my way to, to doing the thing that I do now. So I'd love, love to actually pause you there. You just did something so um, skillful and you really wove your soul encounter in with the teachings prior to that of of the maturing of an ego and this 
process of allowing the ego to become an agent of soul. And I, I can, I can resonate and empathize. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm much earlier in my journey. I only have a few years under my belt right now, but that tug of war between the old ways and what wants to come is very intense. And, uh, you yeah. know, I came out of my, my vision fast with, what I believe you and Rebecca called it, like holding these little seedlings in your hand and, you know, closing your hand so that the winds of the world cannot blow them away and do not let other people, especially, unfortunately, oftentimes the people closest to you, your family, your close friends who maybe do not understand what it is you're doing and what it is you're experiencing. And we're very tender we're very vulnerable um and and easily susceptible to maybe thinking we're crazy or thinking that it was all an illusion and just let's just go back to life before where there's a plan and a path and there's strategy and everyone else is doing it it's easier but i've experienced this i i almost pendulum swung back into full-time employment and then as i was setting up my linkedin page and getting my resume built back up I was like, I something inside of me is screaming, no, you can't do this. This is not for you anymore. <laughs> so soul doesn't, soul doesn't let up, but it does give you time <laughs> to kind of be in this metamorphosis, untangling, awkward, disillusioned phase, which I'm grateful that you clarified. It can take a couple of years. <laughs> totally. And thanks for sharing a bit more about your experience. I'm glad to get to hear, um, some more of, of the journey you've been on since that really potent time we shared together in the desert. And yeah, I mean, this could be all another podcast episode. There's a lot to be said around this and especially, you know, living in, in the culture that we live in that generally speaking does not understand this journey. It can be quite the trial to, to stay with it and to not get thrown off course or at least or get thrown off course, but still find your way back. And, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I'm glad to say that the reward is worth the effort. (laughs) Yes. So please, I know there's so many exciting things happening in your world right now and with your business, with Starlight Leadership. Mm -hmm. So can you give us an overview of what you now offer to the world and the journey that you're helping other people go through? Yeah, absolutely. So Starlight Leadership, the mission of Starlight Leadership is to help others embody their light. And the way that we do that is we help you first learn to develop a masterful practice of noticing and embracing and welcoming home your darkness. So along the same lines that we've been speaking to today, the real the real essence of my company, Starlight Leadership, is to is to support and guide people who are really ready to to walk this path of of soul and willing to to go into the darkness and the mystery and and face their deepest fears and their darkest shadows for the sake of uh, living into the highest and best versions of themselves and their true purpose in this lifetime. Yeah. I work with people who are ready to self-actualize and who are, who are willing to really commit to that goal. 
and I use a few different tool sets in that process. So one of them is, um, executive coaching, specifically conscious leadership coaching, which is one of my pathways to getting to this point where I now have a, a company and a job that feels like a pretty full embodiment of my soul, at least as I understand it today, of course, continues to unfold. Um, executive coaching was kind of an established path that I could walk as I was apprenticing to my soul's gifts. Uh, it gave me just enough structure um, where I could operate within some existing frameworks, was lucky to have some phenomenal teachers and mentors. Um, first and foremost, Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman of the Conscious Leadership Group, um, who guided my coaching certification program, provided me with yeah community and mentorship and also some, some tool sets and frameworks for me to use and apply as I was learning through experience more and more about that deeper sort of more unique essence of what my soul's gift truly, truly is. Uh, so at this point I make that kind of one tool in my tool set is, um, is the coaching work. Another tool is wilderness guiding and, uh, I guide my own vision quests and nature based retreats, wilderness rites of passage programs. I actually, uh, had the pleasure of co-guiding with Rebecca Wild Bear once again um, in August of this year. Uh, she was my my co-guide on the Starlight Leadership, the Starlight Quest, which was um, this time around actually embedded in a in a whole three month program that I call the Power Awakening Program that that brings together one on one coaching, weekly group coaching calls. A, uh, a group vision quest in person here in Colorado. And then also the final um, and newest tool in my tool set, which is cannabis assisted psychedelic guiding. Thank you so much for giving us a, a look into starlight leadership. And I, I mean, I just love what you've created. It speaks so near and dear to, to my heart and also a, a similar vein to what it is I hope to create in the world and the leader I hope to embody as well. And when I received your, I think it was maybe your latest newsletter where you mentioned the cannabis sativa, I, you know, yeah. I did like a double take of like, whoa, when did this come in? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious, um, there, I want to follow two threads. So one would be the cannabis sativa. And then I also, uh, I, I believe I also read that you work with the Enneagram and maybe that's mm -hmm. alive that's right. or maybe it's yeah. not, not as alive. But can you share first with Cannabis Sativa? Very alive. I love the Enneagram. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know much about this medicine and it seems to be coming online in a pretty big way right now. Can you tell us about its gifts and why you felt called to integrate it into your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Great questions. So it just so happens, and this is, this is, uh, I think this is not an uncommon experience as we, as we stride deeper and deeper onto the path of soul, kind of, as you alluded to earlier, you know, some things we plan ahead and, and work towards other things just kind of show up and win us over. <laughs> um, for me, cannabis was the latter. It was really almost a surprise to me actually how, how deeply I've ended up falling in love with this medicine and how, how resonant 
working with cannabis is for me and, and how well it blends with the rest of the work that I do. I had, uh, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll, I'll kind of zoom out or go back a second and, and share that, you know, bigger arena of plant medicine and psychedelics, uh, was, uh, important part of my path for several years, especially, you know, kind of coming off of my first quest as I was on that journey of trying to find ways to stay connected to that feeling inside myself. You know, I pursued many different approaches and, and modalities, um, along that journey and, and psychedelics were one that really worked for me, really, really helped me kind of reconnect to that deeper part of myself and, um, and also continue to open myself spiritually. And something I haven't explicitly said yet on this podcast was that when I came into my first quest with animus, um, I, I identified as a spiritual, but not religious person yet at the same time, I had never had a real active spiritual practice. You know, I felt a sense of spiritual connection to nature, but I hadn't really ever put much structure around that or, even realized that it was possible to deepen that connection through practice and, uh, focus. So, so my first quest was a spiritual awakening of sorts with that dream. And then, um, these plant medicines helped me continue on that journey. Um, so I came into is about a year ago now that I started, um, that I, that I did, uh, training with some folks in Boulder called the center for medicinal mindfulness that do the cannabis assisted psychedelic guide training work. And they've been operating as a cannabis assisted psychedelic therapy clinic um, for many years. Phenomenal people, really great organization. They're doing amazing work. And when I first found them, I thought, um, well, I like that it's local in Colorado and I'd sort of heard good things about the people. And I liked the the model that they had for their trainings. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. And, um, but I, but I was thinking, you know, what I, what I really wanted to do at that time was, was guide people with psilocybin mushrooms. Cause that had been a medicine that had been particularly, uh, supportive for me on my journey. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'd uh, learn the skills with, with cannabis and, and then apply them elsewhere. And yeah, you know, I had a lot, I, I, I had, <laughs> I didn't know at that time how much I had to learn about what it means to, to guide with these medicines. And I still, you know, recognize how early I am in this learning journey and yeah, how much wisdom is out there that is so worth listening to and attending to from, uh, from the ancient indigenous cultures that have been working with these sacraments, these medicines for millennia and have never broken their tradition. And part of that lesson that I think I had to learn was, again, a little bit of a deeper level of like ego and soul. I had to recognize I wasn't the only player who got to make a decision about which medicine I guide with that because I conceive of these medicines as, as beings. These are spirits. These are sentient, conscious, aware beings who are incredibly powerful. Yeah. It, it so turns out that, um, Cannabis was ready for me to step into that kind of a relationship with her and, and mushrooms were not so at this point are not. So a lot of how I've ended up working with cannabis was actually just through the, and again, thanks to the guidance of my good teachers in part, learning to listen 
and be in dialogue with the medicines themselves and to follow the thread of, of where I was being called as a guide and to trust that, uh, the process will let the, let the process lead me and sort of happen through me instead of, um, imposing my preconceived notions on, on the process, on the medicines. So, uh, yeah, could say more about pause there maybe for a second, see if you have any questions or place you want to direct me further. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love the mysteriousness of how these different parts of our life come and click into place, how you can't, you're not totally in control. You know, you're following an intuitive hunch and then these delightful surprises come in uh, almost as if you're being chosen at this time to work with this particular being, this particular energy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's fun because I can, I can look back now and I can see, like, I can see how it makes sense. So like some things that I see are, so one, one key thing is that I like to emphasize is I think a very central element of the work that I do is helping people recognize the power of our perspective, the power of our consciousness and the, and the, the, the perspective we're taking on our lives, how that creates, how much that creates our realities. And so when, when I take people out on the land for a vision quest, you know, one perspective you could take is I'm out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing happening. This is complete wasteland and desert, like, you know, it's desert, uh, barren, and it's just me and a bunch of inanimate trees and birds and stuff. That's so that perspective is going to create one kind of experience. The other perspective you could take is, wow, it's not a wasteland. It's a metropolis. There's, I'm surrounded by all these inherently sentient, aware, conscious beings that are available to be in relationship with me. If I am willing to open up to that, might even, might even have incredible wisdom and guidance and support to to offer me. So that's going to create a, a very different experience. And something I have learned to really love about cannabis is that she reinforces that lesson. So cannabis is a medicine and I, I use, I use she because it's sort of, um, traditionally, you know, the spirit of cannabis is, con- is, is thought of as a feminine spirit of a kind of, uh, as, as, as I've learned so far, sort of a Mary Magdalene, archetype, a little bit of like, uh, witch energy in there. And, and there's a, she has a, a, a softness and a, and, and actually, a can be a seductiveness, um, that can sometimes get us in trouble with cannabis when we are not conscious about our intentions. So I think one of cannabis's great teaching is the power of our intention, because when we, cause, cause she will kind of uh, show up to meet that intention, whether it's a conscious one or not. So if, if our intention is to numb out and disconnect from our lives, she'll do that for us. And, you know, unfortunately that's a lot of probably the vast majority actually of, of at least a lot of, uh, of the cannabis use in our culture is sort of that form and, you know, which I have compassion for because people are in pain. They're trying to self-medicate just like me with work and alcohol in my early twenties. And what I've learned is that when we are, when we are willing to shift our intention and, 
get conscious and get into conscious relationship with the medicine to create an intentional space to be with her and uh, to really give from the bottom of our hearts gratitude and reverence and to ask for her support in not numbing out or disconnecting from our lives, but actually facing and feeling and getting deeper into the truth of our experience. She's phenomenal at creating that experience. So I love working with cannabis because of how accessible she is as a medicine, but also how much power and depth she has to create healing and insight and transformation very much on par with, um, with other sort of more traditionally like potent psychedelics. I mean, with there's a, there is a skill involved and a practice in learning how to create a psychedelic experience with cannabis. But, you know, as I've been practicing those skills, you know, I've reached, I've reached, I've had mushroom-like experiences with cannabis. I've had MDMA-like experiences with cannabis. I've had even ayahuasca-level depth experience with cannabis. It's pretty remarkable what this um, what this crafty little plant can do. Well, you definitely have me intrigued, and as someone who's <laughs> explored explored the depths of my consciousness or the vastness of my consciousness through all of those other substances except cannabis. Um, that mm, feels mm-hmm. really intriguing <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and potentially more accessible as well. Yeah. There's also the really nice benefit of the legal, of legality, you know, at least here in, in Colorado and in many states around the country at this point, like, that is, I'd be remiss not to mention like that. Yes, that's a real benefit. And that does matter to me in my life, like in terms of energetic integrity, like it feels pretty good that I don't have to be super underground and sneaky about, um, my business and my work, you know, I'll, I'll power and respect to the people who are, who are kind of on the, on the bleeding edge with those other medicines where the legal framework has not caught up yet. And that wasn't a, that wasn't a choice that actually, when I really sat with it, really felt good for me and my family in my life. Mm, I'm really glad you brought that, that perspective. And if it's okay with you in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to pause on the Enneagram mm-hmm. part because I feel like that's a whole nother rabbit hole that could take us in a, in a cool direction. But I'm actually, this feels like a yeah. nice time to get your perspective on uh, people going down this path with a trained guide like is is soul work do you need a psychotherapist is it a, is it something a life coach can bring you through you know where should we really be turning to at these times to engage in this type of deep work mm. yeah so i think it's really important for us to get good support and both to to get good support and also to be in community so that we can help keep each other honest you know, I think that can take a lot of different forms. I like the, the, the word guide because specifically when we're talking about the soul journey and also the medicine path, similar to being a wilderness guide, it's helpful to work with somebody who kind of knows this territory, like who's been through it, like who's traveled this journey and learned some of the territory and is they will therefore be more adept at uh supporting you in your own 
journey through it. So I would, I would say it's important to be very, to try to get clear and get specific about what exactly is the type of support you are wanting. Cause there's a lot of really phenomenal coaches and therapists out there who are extraordinarily good at what they do and are not soul guides, have not gone through a descent to soul and metamorphosis process in the way that you might be wanting. That's, that's, that's one thing I would, I would say. And then, and then as far as, um, keeping each other honest, you know, I won't go deep into the Enneagram, but I will, I will touch on it here. Cause actually it's a, it's, it's relevant is part of what I love about the Enneagram as a tool as I, I believe when we use it skillfully, when, when we, when we use it skillfully, it becomes a kind of like a, a roadmap to our ego structure. It's like a blueprint to the architecture of our ego, including our ego's strengths and blind spots. And for someone who is wanting to travel the journey of soul, it's super helpful to have that awareness. Um, because it, because it's like, yeah, a friend of mine likes to say, some people don't like the Enneagram because they think it puts them in a box. And, and my response to them is it doesn't put you in a box. It shows you the box that you're already in. <laughs> and by seeing, seeing the box might be painful, um, might be hard for your ego to accept, but once you see it, you can find your way out of it. And part of why I bring that up in this part of the conversation is that these are powerful tools that we're working with. So whether, so the Enneagram is a powerful tool, soul and, and quests are obviously very powerful spaces and plant medicine are incredibly powerful tools. And, and we're kidding ourselves if we, if we ever as humans think that we are beyond our egos, no matter how far you've traveled on this path, uh, you are still a human being that has blind spots and has shadows. And so surrounding yourself with teachers and also colleagues and community members who are equipped to help you see the way that you are uh, blind to yourself or kidding yourself because we're all going to do it because because we're human. That, I believe, is how we can step into this greater power and be channels for this power to create good in the world while minimizing the painful mistakes we might make along the way. Great. Thank you. I, I really second that. And this idea of community, you've said that word a few times now. And every time you say it, I just feel this like thing in my belly and my, my heart of just how important that is and how you know, very briefly, I'll just share that on, on my vision fast, one of the most moving parts was sitting underneath that Anasazi ruin worth all those perfectly preserved, uh, hand, handprints, those red painted handprints. If you remember that spot and instantly just feeling this deep lostness around community and tribe and a sense of belonging and place that I and so many people in the modern world are experiencing. And I think if anyone were to start somewhere, it would be community. It would be finding fellow travelers along this path because it is lonely at times. And 
like I said before, that tug of war when you want to just go back to your old ways, uh, it has brought me so much relief knowing that even my cohort, my group, that there's an email thread that's basically dormant. We don't really use it anymore, but like there's 14 people that are accessible to me in any given moment. Should I need that? There's, there's guides that I can call and pay a little bit of money to talk to. You know, I can, I, I know where those resources are and it took some time to figure that out. And it is, I think, the most essential place. And even my, my husband, Johnny, like he hasn't done an animus quest, but he's read Bill Plotkin's work. So he's been a tremendous ally for me when I'm saying like, Hey, I'm, I think I'm dissolving right now. I am having a tough time. And here's this funkiness that is coming up in my life right now. And I, you know, I'm not abandoned in that moment. If anything, he helps create a, a secure cocoon and womb around me so that I can go in and, and disintegrate and dissolve. And, and as long as, as long as it takes. Um, so not doing it alone, I think is just an absolute essential component. Yeah. Oh, I feel such joy hearing that you have that kind of beautiful support from your husband. That's fantastic. And speaking of family, one of my final yeah. threads here is, is to, is to turn back the table to you and your journey and the threshold that you are mm-hmm. currently stepping through mm-hmm. this new soul canyon that you're at the edge of. And I was curious if you could just speak to what what is alive in Brooks's world right now. Yeah. Well, so uh, what's alive in, in my world right now is uh, my lovely partner, my wife, Ashley Myers, is uh, I think 36 weeks, 35, 36 weeks pregnant with our baby girl. Uh, first child. And so we are rapidly approaching this, yeah, this big, big threshold of, of transformation in our, our lives. Um, so we prepare to, to welcome a new soul into the world. And so of course there's a lot of, a lot of implications to that. I think, uh, what feels maybe particularly worth sharing in this conversation is, um, as we've been talking about soul is just the, the deep sense of, of honor and gratitude that I feel to have been offered this opportunity to, to guide a new soul's arrival and, um, launch into the world. Ashley and I very much are aligned in the belief that, um, we are not, we are not creating this new person. She's creating herself. So it's remarkable. Actually, even if you look at kind of biologically what's happening in the womb, the baby's really building themselves, of course, using nutrients from the, from the mom's body and the mom's obviously creating the container for that growth to happen. But the miracle of mother nature and, and the miracle of life, I mean, we actually know we know how to, how to create ourselves into the beings we want to be. And so our, our hope as parents is to, is to continue that trajectory as best we can to create, uh, as much as we can, a, a loving and supportive and nourishing, uh, container for this young soul to arrive and, and come to know the world and, and, um, come to know herself and, and launch on her journey. And then best of all, I fully expect that she will be a 
even more powerful teacher for each of us than we, for her. Uh, so I look forward to, to the study and the learning that lies ahead for me in this process. Mm, feels like a really beautiful new paradigm of soul led parenting and growing families. Thank you, my friend. I'll definitely have to have you back for, I think what will end up being season three of this podcast, where I'm going to talk pretty much exclusively about rewilding families and rewilding the cool. act of parenting. Yeah. So that will probably be at least a year and a half from now, which gives you a little bit of time to sink into this process. Good. Good. I look forward to it. Amazing. And uh, I wanted to mention too, on your, on your, the point about, about community is that um, I just couldn't agree more with what you shared there. And yeah, one of my, one of my visions, one of my goals for Starlight Leadership is for that organization to be a space to, to hold a community, uh, hopefully someday a really, a really big and rich community of people who are, who are walking this path and, um, and traveling this journey, uh, so that we can continue to, to support each other and, and learn from each other. So, um, so stay tuned. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for, thank you for leading the way, just like in your vision. Hmm. You don't exactly know where you're going, but you know, it's a good place to go. That's right. One step at a time, just following mm-hmm. that light. Yeah. Thank you. So Brooks, to, to close our conversation, where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So, uh, you can find my website, uh, www.starlightleadership.com. That's the uh, best place to go to learn more about me and, and, uh, to stay tuned with what I'm up to. You can sign up for my monthly ish email newsletter, uh, from that website where you'll get updates about current offerings and, and programs that I'm that I'm running as well as uh, the occasional musings along these topics. And, um, and I'm on, uh, LinkedIn, Brooks Barron and Instagram at Brooks underscore C B. Well, in the spirit of celebrating our light, I'd love to close with a quote that is front and center on your website from Howard Thurman. And that quote is, Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Amen. And with that, I, I thank you, Brooks, for being on the show, sharing your wisdom, your, your story, your experience, and being a a role model for those of us that are on the path. Really appreciate Mm -hmm. it. You're so welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. This was a a pure joy. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wild on Purpose. Please think about writing a review and sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about my leadership offerings or join my newsletter, visit wildonpurpose.co. Lastly, I'd like to thank my podcast editor, Jabril Al-Suhaimi, for helping me weave this audio journey together and all of those who have supported me along my path as a creator. Until next time, stay wild.